Sir Balper and the team would have brought some Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and what follows as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors this week to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, I guess I say note half-heartedly, of particular note this week is the panoply of awards which are being handed out to various major leaguers for gold gloves, for example, and rookies of the year, and Cy Youngs, and all the MVPs. As Cameron notes at some point, while the original intention of these was to commend a player for being excellent, uh, perhaps now the purpose is a polemical one to incite righteous indignation from those who disagree with the writer's uh, votes, and that is probably everyone. There's no such thing as a follows vote. But it is of some interest. And in the case of one award, the Dave Cameron presents an amusing ultimatum. If anyone voted for Matt Shoemaker to win the American League of the Year over Jose Abreu, they should be forced to pitch to Jose Abreu. Beyond that, there's also discussion of uh, free agency. Michael Kodair, for example, this podcast was recorded before she signed for the Mets. There was some speculation as to whether or not he would accept the qualifying offer from the Colorado Rockies, making him the first ever to do so over the three years that that system has existed. Also present in this episode is various tangents on which uh, both host and guest have a habit of going. I guess going is the right verb. Uh, what is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. It features Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs. And it begins right now. I can talk about the awards in general. Okay. Well, listen, I'm going to begin talking to you now as though we haven't been talking for five minutes already. All right. Sounds good. The audience is deceived. As always. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. Should we talk about awards, Dave Cameron? <laughs> Maybe. You're not allowed to talk about your NL MVP award. Or my manager of the year award. Or your manager of the year award, right. Let's Which is good because I don't actually remember who I voted for. I mean, I know who I voted for first, but the right. second and third place ones. The precise order. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I do want to say this with regard to the Silver Slugger. Okay, so here's the thing uh, that happens every time. When I when I thought I was talking about the award, Silver Slugger <laughs> was not at the top of my list. No, but but so this obvious like awards are designed. Oh, I would say part of their purpose is that so um, the is so that people can argue about them after well before and definitely after. Sure. So there could be some sort of, I don't know, debate. That's they create a, they create a polemical frame of mind, regardless. I don't think that's why they were designed, but it's probably why they continue to exist. Okay, right. Well, they were probably designed to what reward a player yeah, for doing a good job, to honor a player for doing a great job, and then they have turned into a uh, an annual tradition in which the media gets to argue about things and and drive traffic. Right, and make uh, spurious arguments about the English language. Uh, yeah, well, I think they would do that even without the awards. It gives them another opportunity to do so. Silver, the Silver Slugger is technically for the best hitter at each position in the American and also National League. Right. Um, now, one note is that after the Silver Sluggers were announced, I saw, oh, that's, I'm not going to say a flurry of tweets. I'll say a dusting if we're going to keep, <laughs> keep, continue the snow metaphor. Yeah. A, uh, um, of, uh, you know, people who were making note of the fact that uh, even though hitter A won the Silver Slugger at his position, uh, hitter B 
uh, actually had the better, you know, adjusted batting line. Yeah. Which is a number, which is something that is relevant to Fangraphs insofar as WRC plus is a good way of judging that. Perhaps the best way. Uh, yeah, I think it's one of the best ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so I was all set to, uh, write a post about how maybe, well, I was going to say, because in, in the, in, in the cases that I saw at least, I think it was like Adrian Gonzalez over Anthony Rizzo probably. Yeah. And maybe another instance in which uh, Ian Desmond won the Silver Slugger over... Johnny Peralta. Johnny Peralta or Hanley Ramirez, I guess, at shortstop. Uh, yeah, but Hanley, I don't think, played enough, right? Well, in any case. The point is, yeah, maybe he didn't play enough. But over, fine, over Johnny Peralta. I said, oh, it's in those cases, it's because um, Hitter A had more RBIs. Right. Um but then, actually, if you look at it overall, uh, it was pretty sane, including uh, Michael Brantley, I think. Yeah, uh, not a traditional slugger. Right, perhaps unexpectedly, uh, winning it over – I don't know who the the more appropriate player would have been in that case. But, uh, but generally speaking, there is a high degree of correlation between adjusted batting lines and the players who win the Silver Slugger Awards. Yeah, I think in all – uh, awards voters are getting smarter. I mean, I think we're going to see this week, uh, you know, we've already seen the finalists announced for the BBWA awards and Michael Brantley finished in the top three of the American League MVP voting where maybe even a couple of years ago that wouldn't have been the case. Uh, this is a player who finished on a team outside the playoffs so he didn't get the, the postseason bump. Not a traditional slugger, didn't have a ton of home runs, I think he had 22 or something. As uh, a corner outfielder, uh, you know, not a not a speed and defense guy, so he's not getting a ton of credit for you know playing a position like Jimmy Rollins a couple of years ago, or even a catcher like Buster Posey. Uh, so if a corner outfielder doesn't have a lot of home runs on a losing team or a non-winning, non-playoff team at least, uh, is going to finish in the top three in MVP voting. That's a pretty big step forward for the BBWAA. Yeah, and uh, were there any other surprises along those lines? No, with regard to these finalists, is this they they the winner is already known and yeah. The, the word finalist is kind of uh, a little bit of a trick in that normally you would think of a finalist as like the people who advance to another round of competition and then there is another another face-off or another uh, chance for all of the finalists to win. Yeah. This, is, this is not true. This is They announced the top three in voting that has already been tabulated. Uh, they're not finalists. They're the top three, essentially. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, so this is kind of like, you know, I don't know, uh, the American Idol thing or something where they, they already know who gets eliminated and then they stretch it out over an hour and make you watch, you know, or make your wives watch or your girlfriends or whoever still watches American Idol uh, and and drag it out to the end until they make the announcement. Uh, yeah. Uh, I guess maybe among the less, the more traditional MVP, uh, MVP finalists is Victor Martinez. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty clear he was going to finish in the top three, even though he probably shouldn't just because of his raw offensive numbers. I mean, if there's one maybe blind spot that we would say that baseball writers are still clinging to in the face of a decent amount of evidence, it's that they dramatically overvalue first base slash DH types who drive in a lot of runs. And, you know, so this is going to take a while. This is a wall that isn't going to fall easily. Uh, and Victor Martinez represents kind of the ultimate candidate that they voted for in the past. So I think he's not going to win, and that's going to be a... A nice step forward for the baseball writers to not give it to a mediocre, uh, non-deserving DH. Not that he was, I mean, he was very good for a DH, but relative to Mike Trout, he was very mediocre this year. Uh, you know, in pri- prior years, we've seen guys like Juan Gonzalez win over, uh, you know, peak Alex Rodriguez. Uh, we've seen some, you know, Ryan Howard has won a couple MVPs with similar kinds of seasons. 
the fact that Victor Martinez isn't going to win this year is a little bit of a victory. Uh, but, you know, how much of the, the mindset of all the voters is changing is, can be seen in uh, the fact that Martinez is probably still going to finish second. Hey, listen, it, you mentioned that there have been seasons in which Juan Gonzalez won over someone who would, you know, if you look at it, had probably produced um, considerably more wins. Um, that reminds me, one thing we didn't address, and I think it makes sense to address momentarily, is with regard to the Fangraphs Player of the Year Award voting, one part of it, uh, in, in addition to on our ballots, Ranking the players 1 through 10 was to provide a, a number, which is essentially the percentage of seasons in which that player would have won the Player of the Year award. Correct. I went back to, and looked at mine, and maybe you did this. Well, you didn't do it, but maybe you noticed it with some of the others. I think that my percentages were too high across the board. Yeah, absolutely. All, yeah. I think we didn't or I didn't do a very good job of explaining kind of the math behind this and just kind of left people to figure this out on their own where realistically in any given year there's probably only two or three guys who could even be decent candidates to win an award, uh, where everyone from four on down is probably close to zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people didn't treat it that way. People kind of allocated, you know, higher than 50% numbers to most of the guys on their ballot, or at least a good chunk of them. And so uh, it was one of the reasons why we're going to reevaluate if we continue that next year, but or maybe we'll just try and educate people in a better way. But certainly... Uh, you were not the only one who who put numbers that were significantly too high for for your ballot. It's a steep curve. It's yeah. It should basically be like you know somewhere between probably fifty and eighty in most years, or forty and eighty or something like that uh, in most years for the top spot, and then maybe in the ten to twenty range for the second spot, and then it's close to zero for almost everyone else. Right. Yeah. 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 That's what I was thinking. I I looked at it afterwards. I said, uh, well, there's a lot of information perhaps to um to sort of consolidate in one thing. Cause there was it, was no a, it was a difficult question to ask, yeah. yeah. Right. It was not something that, uh, that is intuitive to a person when they just look at it right. on, the, on their face. You're like, oh, yeah, Mike Trout had a great year, but so did Clayton Kershaw. They would definitely win most years. And then you're like, man, there's been a lot of great years in baseball history. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not, right. That's the, that's the idea. Uh, what, who's uh, So that's the MVP. We mentioned the MVP briefly. When does that happen? What is that? One of these Thursday. days? Thursday. Yeah, so Thursday, I think it's yeah. Rookie of the Year today, Manager tomorrow, Cy Young Wednesday, and uh, the MVP on Thursday. Oh, yeah. Rookie and in the using today and tomorrow, I have forced you to put the podcast up today. Because if I if you put it up tomorrow, then none of these are going to make sense. Well, none of, none of what's are going to make sense? The todays and tomorrows. Because and, oh, if, yeah. if people are listening to this tomorrow... Then tomorrow will be Wednesday, and they will be all thrown off. Okay. So wait. So rookie of the year. What are we? Rookie uh, of the year on Monday. That's today. That's yeah. literally today. Yeah. That okay. will probably happen and be announced before you get this podcast up. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm betting. And I, I mean, uh, Jose Abreu is a candidate yeah. in the American League. He's the only candidate in the American League. Yeah. yeah. The only I reasonable mean, one. Dylan Batanzas and Matt Shoemaker finished second, and third in some order. Probably Dylan Batanzas second. If anyone voted for Matt Shoemaker to win the American League of the Year over Jose Abreu, they should be forced to pitch to Jose Abreu. Yeah, the um, uh, the uh, I like Matt Shoemaker. Would you have voted for him over Jose Abreu? No, I wouldn't have. Okay. No, I think he was good though. He helped the uh, Angels after they lost Garrett Richards. I mean, he helped he, them before that too. He had a nice second half of the season. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. All right. So Jose Abreu just was uh, – he beat everybody. He's going to – and actually, uh, he's not included, but 
uh, it seems as though one could make a reasonable argument for including uh, Masahiro Tanaka on that list. Yeah, if, I, th- if one I had think wanted uh, to. voters have generally tended to stay away from shorter-term excellent players on the Rookie of the Year ballot and almost always go for guys who spent the entire season. They basically go by counting stats and not by rate stats. So right. I think we've seen this in, in prior years where guys were excellent for half a season and they still don't win the award uh, over someone who played 150 games and were mediocre uh, voters just, you know, they tend to look at home runs and RBIs or wins and strikeouts, and these things take a while to. to oh yes, up. although one notes that Ma- that Tanaka actually threw more innings than both Schumacher and Batances. Did you well, know that? There, there goes that theory. One thirty-six point one. No, but I think it has something to do with like days around, right? Because he was because he was gone by what the uh, July sometime. Right, a little after the All Star break. Yeah. yeah. So, but he actually threw 136.1 innings. Shoemaker 136, but was more or less on the club the entire time. And then, uh, well, Batances so only 90. Yeah. Well, 90 is a lot for a reliever. It is a lot so. for a reliever. Yeah. 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 But uh, Tanaka was fantastic. He was very good. Yeah. Yeah. And what is he going to be okay by next year? Uh, well, he did make that final start of the season, but his velocity was down, I think, mm-hmm. uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, so, who knows? I think they're hoping so, and he'll show up in spring training and hope his arm doesn't fall off. Okay. Uh, National League, uh, DeGrom, Jacob DeGrom, mm-hmm. who entered the year, and actually even in the minor leagues did not produce particularly uh, impressive numbers, and then uh, became an excellent major leaguer. Yeah, he's uh, one of these interesting pitchers who gets better after they get to the show. And sometimes, you know, I think Matt Shoemaker, also an example of this, was not a very good minor league pitcher and then excellent in the majors. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes these guys made an adjustment and they're they're actually better than they were uh, previously. And then other times it was a fluke. Right. Uh, Billy Hamilton uh, did uh, – what, he sort of behaved probably precisely like – well, not precisely, but um, mostly like people might have expected him to insofar as – um, he did not hit particularly well, uh, but between uh, base running and defense, he managed to uh, produce an above-average major league season. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for the first half of the year, he actually hit okay. Uh, there was one point in mid-May where he had like six home runs or something like that. Uh, I think I remember tweeting that at some point Billy Hamilton had more home runs than Robinson Cano, which was kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that didn't, that didn't last though. He was atrocious at the plate in the second half of the season. Uh, it's certainly, um, defensively, maybe even better than anyone had hoped. Uh, on the bases, kind of not, maybe not what we expected. I mean, we, I think as we saw as a pinch runner, he was almost impossible to throw out. There were some really fun posts last year, uh, from different people, either Jeff Sullivan here and, uh, over at <clears throat> Baseball America, I think J.J. Cooper had a, a really fantastic post on how hard it was to throw out Billy Hamilton based on kind of time to the plate and catcher pop time. And, you know, he was basically an automatic stolen base weapon, uh, kind of like Terrence Gore was in the playoffs down the stretch for the Reds last year. I think this year he got thrown out like 30 times or something. He like uh, got caught stealing a lot. So yeah, maybe he, he did. And not he's... as good a base runner as we would have thought he was going to be. Yeah, and actually I think that deserves a caveat or a note because I think that while he – was not worth much, if anything, in terms of stolen base runs. He still finished among the league leaders in overall uh, runs produced by running the bases. Right, on the non-stolen base stuff. Right, so, yeah. I mean, you know, it still helps to be fast, and you can go from first to third and second to home. And well, he had that play early in the year where he scored from uh, second base on a sacrifice fly to the outfield or something. I mean, like, uh, you know, he's crazy fast and can produce runs with his legs, even when he's not a very efficient base dealer. But I think based on what we saw... In the major leagues, at least, 
we thought he might be, you know, maybe an 80 or 85 percent base dealer, and he was what, like a 70 percent base dealer or yeah. something. Yeah, if that. The uh, it, to to your point about scoring, um, unbelievably on a on a play when uh, Kyle and I were down at the Arizona Fall League, we saw Dan Vogelbach. Are you familiar uh, with the, him? Yeah. Did he score from first on a home run? <laughs> no, he didn't. Um, uh, he didn't score from well, first. No, on he, home yeah, run. we did not see, We didn't see a situation <laughs> where that. He did somehow drive in three. The bases were loaded. He hit the ball. And here's where here's the um, the the batters and runner state at the end. All three runners scored, and, and yet he single? was he was on first base. <laughs> yeah, the three run single is uh, not not too common in the current. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, there were a number of people around who okay. swore that they had never seen that. I mean, without like the batter getting injured on the like way to falling first. down or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, so. Uh, also in the National League, uh, besides Billy Hamilton, was uh, Colton Wong and Jacob DeGrom. Yeah, I think uh, DeGrom's going to win, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it could be close. I mean, there could be some people who go with the everyday position player who spent the whole year in the majors. DeGrom didn't come up until May, I think, so there's some voters who might hold that against him. How many innings did he throw versus Tanaka? Jacob DeGrom, uh, author of 140 innings. So, so that's fascinating. Like, Tanaka, excellent for 136, not in the top three. DeGrom, excellent for 140 in the same city. Uh, probably gonna win. Yeah, it, it it must really have something to do with. Uh, I think that voters they don't um, like injured guys. Probably. Yeah, is this in, this is not primacy? What is the opposite? Uh, recency bias. Yeah, recency bias. Is this yeah. recency bias at play? Right, or? Tanaka finished on the DL, so he just wasn't in their mindset. Right. Yeah, when yeah. they went to vote, they're like, I haven't seen this guy in a couple of months. So. Right. Yeah, yeah. He hasn't been helping his team recently. Right. It is right. hard to teach your mind that all of the games, I mean, more or less, are of the same value, right? I guess it probably early season wins might be slightly more valuable, in fact, actually, insofar as they inform your decisions for the second half of the season. Right. I think we could actually argue that April through June wins uh, matter more because they let you make trades at the trade deadline to improve your team versus doing a sell-off or something. So uh, there certainly isn't a very strong case that September wins matter more, but they're the last ones we see. And, and you're right, I think as humans, we tend to put too much emphasis on what we've seen lately. Right. Yeah. It's hard to say. It's hard, Like if you see two teams tied in the standings, it's hard to, uh, to tell your brain that if uh, Team A had just one more games earlier in the season, then this this would not be tied right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jacob DeGrom won that. That's fine. What uh, did the Golden Globes happen yet? The Golden Globes. What about the Gold Gloves? The Golden Globes. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, don't know about the Golden Globes, but the Gold Gloves were announced last week, and they were predictably mediocre. Okay. All right. Yeah. I uh, I believe August uh, Fagerstrom uh, did a post looking at. Yeah, by the numbers. Right, to the degree that we could. Uh, I think, you know, they were, I will say this, the gold gloves have gotten better. They used to be an embarrassment, like Raphael Palmero, the year right, he aged one one. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, the, they've been some really atrocious ones. This year, I think the worst one was probably Nick Markakis, uh, who's generally graded out as a below average fielder, but is regarded to be a good defender for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Adam Jones, who has generally not been a good center fielder, but by the metrics had a good season this year, but he won his fourth gold glove when he's probably uh, not deserving of any of them, or maybe one this year right. uh, at most. Uh, yeah. But I think the kind of the humor of these this voting comes about when you see Baltimore and Kansas City play in the playoffs. It was pretty clear to anyone who watched that series uh, which team had the good outfield defense and which team didn't. And Baltimore won two, and Kansas City won one. The uh, Cy Young. Uh, Wait. Yeah. The, Cy Cy Young, Young. the AL Cy Young vote is probably the most interesting, and the NL Cy Young vote is probably the least interesting. Right, because insofar as the 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 candidate to win the NL Cy Young is also a strong candidate for the NL MVP award. 
Well, he's the, yeah, but he's also the only candidate to win. I mean, I think Clayton Kershaw is going to get all 28 votes and mm-hmm. I will be shocked if, if anyone voted for Johnny Cueto, it might be a Cincinnati voter, but even that would probably be too obviously biased for right. them. Right. Uh, I can't imagine that Clayton Kershaw doesn't, doesn't win that long award unanimously. Right. Hey, is there, uh, there probably hasn't, has there been a case when a pitcher has won the MVP, but, uh, not a Cy Young and so, so for long as that award has been available? I believe a relief pitcher did it in the, 60s, maybe, yeah, or maybe. 70s. I think there's an example of a reliever winning the MVP in which he didn't win the Cy Young, but I could be wrong. That would be bananas. That would be. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, we can uh, we can use uh, we can look that up. We'll all look that up. Yeah. Maybe by the, by the end, or forget about it. We could either look it up or forget about it. Dave I'm Campbell. guessing the latter. Okay. Yeah. Let's do the latter instead. Uh, and then the American League is uh, interesting. Uh, Felix Hernandez, Corey Kluber, and uh, Chris Sale, who I think. Um, uh, yeah, who pitched well, but maybe fewer innings was the problem. I can't imagine who you're rooting for. I'm, well, I, sure, I'd love to see Corey Kluber win, but, uh, I think that you could make an argument, uh, I mean, you can make pretty decent arguments. I think people have, right, for either him or, or Hernandez. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's close. I think no matter who you think is better, you probably think it wasn't a big difference. Uh, you know, I think on our site we've had posts arguing both directions where Tony Blingino kind of ran through his numbers with park adjustments and batted ball contact and that kind of thing and came out with Hernando slightly ahead. I think, mm-hmm. uh, uh, might have been Jeff or August, uh, did a post kind of adjusting for team defense and, uh, and put Kluber ahead. Uh, I think it depends on some assumptions that you make and, and how comfortable you are with uh, batted ball data and, and how you assign that to a team versus the pitcher. Um, but you know, I think either, either one is a viable, uh, winner. Uh, I think Felix will probably win, but it's going to be close. Do, do you think that it, that this is a referendum on the importance or the effect of a defense on a pitcher's run prevention totals? Not at all. Okay. I, I think that the voters are probably not diving in that deeply uh and while we would maybe, maybe we would like them to that is not yet how they're voting okay it, um half that just wanted to use the word referendum okay i mean it's not that rare of a word no yeah okay uh what uh one thing we're forced to realize and i think uh mr fagerstrom definitely addressed this last week uh was the question of phil hughes not uh, not nominated or not a finalist i mean he, he was nominated not a finalist for the al saying award but uh turns out to be uh some some um, frightening similarities frightening for AL batters i guess to the to Cliff Lee's um ev- uh, evolution yeah i think those numbers were uh much closer than i would have expected before reading the post what 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 exactly happened he just stopped walking people. Is that the idea? Yeah, uh, right. I mean, that's basically these guys just uh, pound the strike zone. And uh, I mean, Hughes has always been a strike zone guy, but he's previously given up a lot of hard contact in the zone. I mean, that's kind of the, the downside, right? If you throw the ball down the middle, you're never going to walk anyone, but you're going to give up a lot of hits and a lot of home runs, which is what Hughes did in New York. Moved to Minnesota where the you know ball doesn't carry as well and the fences are deeper and it's colder. Like, uh, you're probably going to have better uh, results on contact than you did in New York. I think the the um, total improvement from Hughes can't simply be attributed to the change in ballparks or change in environments. Uh, and as August pointed out, uh, pitchers have made transformations at this point in their careers before, and and in a similar matter and sustained them. So you know probably Phil Hughes is not going to follow in Cliff Lee's footsteps and become one of the best pitchers in baseball, but it's possible. Yeah. Uh, I guess you would always bet against that. 
Yeah, I mean, right. If the question is ever, is this guy going to become the best pitcher <laughs> in baseball, the answer is always no. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, are we done with the awards? Did we do all of them? Uh, we didn't do manager of the year, but, I mean, what are we going to say? Did you ever come to... Did you ever come to... Because you, you've submitted your ballot already. Uh, yeah, I have, yeah. Did you ever come at least to... Did you ever establish at least the the underpinnings, the the foundations of the, your criteria for for naming a, a manager of the year? Yeah, so the best I could come up with after talking to people in the game and around managers and, and people who I felt like knew more about this than I would uh, was to kind of try and uh, grade it on a couple of things. So I put very little emphasis on in-game strategy, which I think people in our position often put the most emphasis on versus like how often they bunt or or those kinds of things, how sabermetrically inclined they are in terms of strategy. I put almost no emphasis on that. I put a pretty large amount of emphasis on overcoming adversity. So mm-hmm. if a team had a bunch of injuries or some kind of, uh, you know, challenge that arose that wasn't necessarily predictable from the outset, uh, and they were able to overcome that, I gave the manager credit for, uh, at least being in charge while that happened, whether it was his responsibility or not, he, he at least had to adjust to circumstances that weren't planned. If a team just stayed healthy and they, you know, their starting lineup played really well all year, uh, you know, I, I didn't give them a lot of credit for that. Well, let me ask you a question I, I, so that you don't have to necessarily talk about the NL ballot. What's an example of, uh, uh, of an extraordinary incident or of an instance in the, in the American League of that happening? Well, I didn't evaluate the American League as closely, so I will have to think about that now. You're allowed to <laughs> think, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would say... The Tigers are probably a decent example of a case where I don't think they had significant adversity this year. I mean, Miguel Cabrera wasn't quite Miguel Cabrera, but, you know, Victor Martinez was amazing. Uh, so that offset most of that. Okay. Um, you know, their pitchers stayed generally pretty healthy. Uh, they didn't really have too many injury concerns. Um, you know, I can't really think of one significant challenge that arose for the Tigers this year that was not fairly easily overcome versus... Uh, I don't know, maybe a team like the Orioles, where you lose Manny Machado and uh, Chris Davis doesn't hit, and uh, you know uh, they had some some pretty significant challenges to overcome and and did so. Uh, not saying that that's all Buck Walter, but mm-hmm. I would give him some credit for being in charge while it happened. And uh, is there any sort of, I guess you, you did mention strategy, but um, I think you and others are, have uh, praised Buck Walter's. Uh, management of relief pitching in the playoffs, at least. Are there any managers who acquit themselves like that that well uh, during the regular season, or is it is it uh, more similar case by case? Yeah, I think in the in the regular season, managers are a little more similar in bullpen usage simply because they have to be. I mean, you you can't run your relievers into the ground by using them as aggressively as you can in the postseason. Uh, so things get constricted a little bit more where it's generally everyone's using their closer in the same situations and no one's bringing them in in the eighth inning and uh, you're generally just playing the matchups. Uh, I do think, you know, maybe the, the strategy point that might be talked about the least that could make a difference is maybe the number of challenges issued. Um, a lot of managers just kind of sat on their challenges this year and, and didn't use them and then they kind of expired and they're like, well, there was an advantage that I didn't get. So, um, I think, you know, the number of challenges issued is one way to look at kind of a manager's aggressiveness in trying to use the resources uh, he has available to him. And I did look uh, and try and see if there were obvious cases where a manager was more aggressive in, in issuing challenges and trying to get his team an advantage that way. Uh, but even still, I think that stuff's probably dwarfed by the leader of men 
uh, adversity overcoming type of things that is really what managers are hired for. Okay. Uh, we're just talking about managers there. Uh, can we, do you mind if we talk about general managers for a second, in particular how they're meeting right now? Uh, they are. Uh, well, I don't know if they're meeting with each other, but they're all in the same hotel. They're in the same hotel, right. Yeah. <laughs> this is a funny way to think about it. Yeah. Um, that's what, is that what the GM meetings are? It's an opportunity to bring all of the general managers to the same hotel? Well, so, yeah, basically. I mean, they actually have committees and they do have gatherings where they all get together and discuss issues within the game. So it is like a logistical, uh, it stems from trying to hammer out some issues. Like, I think they're going to discuss the rules changes that MLB considered in the Arizona Fall League about, like, the pitch clock and speeding up the game. And this is a case for GMs to kind of get together and, and you know, talk about uh, the game as a whole rather than just roster construction issues. And then while they're all there, they'll talk to agents. It's obviously if you're, you know, Scott Boris or something and you're shopping one of your clients, if everyone's at the same hotel, it's pretty easy to just have a whole bunch of meetings all at once versus conference calls or flying all over the country. Right. And, but do what? But does do deals get done at this point? Rarely. This is almost all uh, foundation laying. Where you know maybe uh, the Dodgers, for instance, you know, new front office place in place with Andrew Friedman and Farhan Zaidi and Josh Burns and everyone else they've hired, Gabe Kapler, all these guys coming in. So they're making a lot of changes. So they're probably touching base with the 29 other teams and saying, look, you know, this is what we're going to try and do this winter. This is what we're going to try and accomplish. All of our outfielders are available. We want to cut payroll. We need a shortstop. Uh, and just kind of, you know, uh, tell other teams this is what we're looking to do. And then over the next couple months, uh, teams will try and figure out who they match up with. Uh, even if I – now, I believe that uh, today, Monday, is also the deadline for players to uh, accept or decline their qualifying offers. That's correct, 5 p.m. Eastern. 5 p.m. Eastern. And even if I get this up by then, unlikely that, even if I get yeah. it up by then, um, people will be listening to it after that. Uh, what – will we have an instance, do you suppose, Dave Cameron, I'm asking you to stick your neck out. Yeah. Well, we have an instance of the first accepted qualifying offer. Well, on Friday when I did buy free agent predictions, I said Michael Goodyear would decline and sign a three-year deal uh, with Seattle. I think is where I predicted he would go. Uh, today, it sounds like the rumblings are he might take it uh, or work out a, a two-year deal with the Rockies instead of taking it. Maybe he'll get 224 or something. Uh, so it sounds like things are leaning towards no. Uh, but if there's going to be anyone to accept, it's going to be Michael Goodyear. Right. And as we addressed last week, uh, he's in a um, – it's a difficult place for Michael Kadair, although maybe equally difficult f- for the Rockies insofar as <laughs> either way they're probably going to end up with Michael Kadair. Well, I don't know if it's so difficult for Michael Kadair to decide if he really wants $15 million or not. I mean, that's – I would make that decision for him if he would if he would like to. If, yeah. he, if this is like a difficulty on him, I will help him. There's a, there's a lot of decisions that, that professional athletes make that do not apply to Dave Cameron. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Do you get sent a lot of free gear from Adidas in the mail? Uh, I have been never sent any gear from Adidas in the mail in my life, but I have received many books, which I bet reader uh, professional athletes probably don't get. <laughs> That's so, true. Yeah. And you always see them uh, complaining about it, too, in interviews and on uh, by way of social media. They say, I love all of this free gear, but um, where are all the books? Yeah, where's my Bill James handbook? Yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Uh, I've never heard that from an athlete, just FYI. No, I haven't heard it. Yeah, uh, and last thing I'll harass you about, uh, because once qualifying offers have or have not been accepted, uh, then we'll have a, a more fuller understanding, a more full understanding of the 
free agent pool. You made uh, you you made some predictions last Friday, I guess, on Friday, Thursday, Friday, yeah, Friday. Yeah. That sounds right. Uh, the results are there for anyone to see. I'm curious as to generally what your uh, process was f- for going through this because there are well, there's rough 55 free agents, 30 teams. Uh, are you just uh, attempting to recognize what holes teams have or might have and then trying to fill them with the available free agents, also considering you know, financial resources, et cetera? Uh, so the teams was mostly a wild guess. I was more <laughs> concerned about the dollars, so I spent most of the time trying to figure out how much I thought the player would sign for, right. and then once I kind of established an expected market value, I figured – Let's go find a team that can afford this. And so in some cases, like the Hanley Ramirez contract, that's like a, you know, there's like a 0.02% chance that happens. Like I basically just made that up. There's no rumor that that's going to happen, but it's possible, right? Like there's some theoretical world in which the Rockies could trade Troy Tulowitzki and no one else could have signed Hanley Ramirez and he wants to play shortstop and like, you know, they have money to spend because they traded Troy Tulowitzki. So it's like a theoretical possibility. Essentially what I was trying to say is, I think Hanley Ramirez was going to get a lot of money, uh, much more than the fans expected, and I didn't know where to put him because the teams with money uh, weren't obvious suitors, so I just picked one. Uh, but I think, you know, on the team guessing, just see it as guesses for the most part. We've already seen I was wrong about where Chris Young signed, the hitter Chris Young, not the pitcher Chris Young, mm-hmm. uh, and I can very well be wrong about Kadair not taking the qualifying offer. So, you know, the credibility of my guesses as to where players are going should be minimal. Uh, but hopefully the dollar amounts are not totally off because I think I spent a little more time on that and have, you know, maybe a slightly more informed opinion about financial issues than where players are going to sign. Do you, did you find that um, as your um, year and dollar amounts relate to those produced by the crowdsourcing effort, do you find that it was sort of a flat uh, rate of inflation you were applying to the crowd's estimates or was it uh, – were there any sort of stipulations you were taking into account? So I didn't like uh, just you know take the crowd's offer and multiply it by 1.15 or something, but I certainly made note uh, in my head that when the crowd's estimates came out, uh, I thought the top end was way too low. Hanley uh, Ramirez, I had I don't know 40 million dollars higher or something, uh, and I had John Lester maybe 20 million dollars higher, or 30 million dollars higher. I think the top tier of free agents, the crowd has just historically been too low on. Uh, and I was significantly higher on those guys. I think the middle tier and lower tier were probably pretty similar. Um, I might have been a little bit lower even on some of the kind of role player types. I think the crowd gave a decent amount of money to, to some guys who were, you know, maybe marginal players. Um, but I think overall I escalated the total amount spent by, I don't know, 100, 100 to 200 million dollars over what the crowd had. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and to your point regarding the, the, the top free agents. That is, uh, that is the case. Do you think it's just because, uh, when it comes to a top free agent, there's always going to be one team that's willing to spend a, a sort of extraordinary amount of money? I'm not really sure, to be honest. I think it's one of the interesting dichotomies of our readership base is that, uh, regularly when we talk about the kind of the price of a win in free agency, a significant crop of our readers will yell at us about the fact that they don't think it should be linear and that a six-win player is worth more than twice as much as two three-win players and that the top-end guys should get dramatically more than the 
the kind of linear dollar per win model would suggest because of the scarcity of, of the elite players. But then when we ask them how much elite players are worth, they dramatically underestimate their value. So uh, whether uh, – I can't really explain that paradox, to be honest. Yeah, well, I can't either. Maybe it, um, that's a paradox. That's probably you can't explain it. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, if I was going to try, it would be that maybe the crowdsourcing uh, number of people – uh, overwhelms the vocal major- minority who think that there's a nonlinear dollar per win at the high level. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even then, I would think like there's enough of them who are pretty loud that they would have some impact. And to drive the number down is is the opposite of what I would have expected. Okay, Dave Cameron. Uh, well, a good job this week. Not necessarily a lot um, of meat with which we can deal. No one's playing baseball, really. This is a vegan podcast. It's, yeah, it's a little bit. It's, at least it's a lean cut of meat. Uh, okay. There's this is a, the ground turkey of Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, we're just a, it's awards and people want to fight about awards, but it's uh, not, to me it's not particularly interesting. I, mean, I, I would assume for our listeners too. I don't know. Our awards posts do pretty well graphic wise. Yeah, because they say, oh well, what did Fangraphs say? That's that's the answer. That's what people say. They say, oh, that's the answer. Mm, no, I think they say those guys are idiots. Yeah. At least that's what my mentions are. I've seen, I've seen nothing to that effect. Yeah, Only well, praise. Maybe you should have more opinions, and then you will uh, you also get called an idiot. Yeah. Uh, I get called an idiot enough around the house. Yeah. So I'll just stay with that. Uh, but good job, Dave Cameron. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Stick around for one second, but in the meantime, I'll say, uh, yeah, thank you, Dave Cameron. That's the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Zestuli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.